You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. We're going to dive into God's Word. Matthew chapter 12 is where we're going to be. I'm going to pray quick. Matthew chapter 12, we're continuing the series, The Kingdom of Heaven. Lord, thank you for this time to dive into your word. In just the next few moments, I pray that you'd give us receptive hearts to receive from you. This morning, we're talking about something that's um, not of this world. It's upside down. It's, it's turned around. It's, it's not easy for our hearts to cling to. And I just pray that you would give us humble, receptive hearts. Give us the capacity to receive all that you have for us. In your precious name, amen. This morning I want to share a message with you called Justice of the Kingdom. Justice in the Kingdom of God. It's, um, it's a main pillar in the Kingdom of Heaven that Jesus came to introduce. And it's not something that's talked about very often in the church. And so I want us to dive into that in the next few moments. Justice. It's a main theme that Jesus be- began to proclaim that his Kingdom of Heaven was going to administer justice on the earth. And we're very familiar with justice. We are surrounded daily by cries for justice. We hear it right now with the, the injustices happening on the southern border and, and people are in an uproar, and I would say right, rightfully so, over kids being separated from their parents, uh, over policies and whatnot. Those cries for injustice, we're all familiar with that. There's others that are upset about race issues, and, and our nation is built on a foundation of justice. Being, we all have inalienable rights. We all have certain rights that need to be fought for, right? We, we all want what we deserve. The kingdom of heaven justice is different. We actually don't get what we deserve. So in this world, justice means getting what we deserve, fighting for our rights. You know, in the preamble of the Constitution says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish what? Establish justice. It's one reason our forefathers came to this place, because they wanted to contend for justice. The Pledge of Allegiance says, one nation under God, indivisible, or indivisible under God, uh, for liberty and justice for all. It's so into the fabric of our culture and our society, and our Western way of thinking, it's now impacted the entire world. It's this cry and this plea for justice. Well, Jesus came, he stepped onto the scene 2,000 years ago, And the Jews were expecting this. They were expecting for a Messiah to come and establish and bring about justice. And for them, they were being oppressed by the the Roman uh, Empire. They were subject to a foreign uh, nation, a foreign empire, foreign kingdom. And they were expecting for their Messiah to come and proclaim justice, which meant something very specific for them 2,000 years ago. But Jesus began to proclaim a justice that was kind of turned their uh, expectations of justice on head. I would say that justice, as we're, gonna, as we're going to explore it here in these next few moments, justice is uh, simply a glimpse of who God is. Justice is a display of God's character. Because God is both holy, he is good, he is set apart, he is just. And so justice is this display or this revelation of who God is. Let's just quickly look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, as we see this prophecy about the justice of God that this Messiah would bring. He says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there because he was aware of the the Pharisees wanting to uh, start 
they were starting to plot his death. So he, he withdrew from that dangerous situation. He said, many followed him and he healed them all. Just stop there for a moment. He healed them all. He didn't just have like a, a back healing anointing in that moment or a headache healing anointing. He, he healed them all. And honestly, I'm praying for that day. I'm praying for that day when everyone with cancer is healed and everyone with arthritis is healed and, and people are just made right. We're not there yet, but we're going to keep praying and contending for that with faith that that same anointing would be alive today. He healed them all. He didn't have to explain away why some weren't healed. And he ordered them not to make him known because he knew his time wasn't, it wasn't quite yet time for him to give his life. This was to f- fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my, ser- my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim what? Justice to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews even. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He's going to bring about justice in a way that's not like this world. He's not going to have to scream it from the rooftops. He's not going to have to uh, cause damage and pain to others. Until he brings, what, justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So the Jews, in awaiting their Messiah, they were, they, were in, they were expecting a Messiah to bring about justice. It's a key pillar to this kingdom that was coming, this kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus began to talk about justice, their ears perked up. This was in line with exactly what they were expecting. Yes, of course, the Messiah would be bringing justice. Another key prophecy which I read a couple weeks ago, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and up to uphold it, with what? With justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do, will do this. And scholars would actually say, really, justice and righteousness are almost interchangeable. Jesus came to establish justice or righteousness, making things right. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and to the Jews, he was declaring, I'm going to make things right. But as you see, even in that, that first prophecy we read, his making things right extends beyond the Jews. He came to declare and describe and establish a kingdom from another world that would make things right. So if you want to begin to think about the justice of God, think of it as God establishing how he's going to make things right. And so there's going to be an analogy I'm going to kind of play with this entire sermon this morning that I just want you to bring yourself into. Picture yourself coming before King Jesus, carrying a burden, carrying an issue, carrying maybe a sickness in your body, a, uh, a, a wrong that someone had done against you, and you're coming before the king. This is not in the time of judicial courts. You want your issue to be handled with the king. So you're coming before King Jesus, and you're saying, here is my case. I'm pleading my case. Here is my issue. What would the king then do? He would make a decision, which really, justice is a decision being made, a judgment being made about a situation or a case. So you're presenting your, your issue, your burden, your case before the king, and he's going to make a decision. 
And what proceeds out of his mouth as you stand before him is a decision about how he's going to make things right in your life. But the upside-down nature of justice in the kingdom of heaven is not that we get what we deserve, because we don't. At least we don't have to get what we deserve. He begins revealing a means or a, a way of administering justice where he essentially puts the ball back in our court. And he, he, he reveals, to us, reveals to us a path of possibilities. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. What, what Jesus is about to do is he's, you know, he's ministering for three and a half years. He's about to take the full sacrifice, the full payment for our wrongdoing. Justice always deals with wrongdoers and those that are wronged. In our world, we, we kind of highlight those that are wronged, the victims of justice, and we have cries for these injustices, for them to be made right. But justice also deals with the wrongdoers, right? That's the, the negative side of justice. Justice also says there must be punishment for wrongdoing. The kingdom of heaven is the same. It deals with the wrongdoers and the wronged. But Jesus proclaims a message that's so upside down. He's saying there's a way for you not to receive what you deserve. I'm actually going to take on the payment for what you've done. But in order for us to begin to receive that message of justice, there has to be a deep, deep heart change in each and every one of us. And that's what I want to take the rest of the time to just present to you. As you're standing in the, in the throne room of King Jesus, he's presenting to you his decision about your situation, your issue, your burden. He reveals to you the path forward of how he can make things right. In Matthew chapter 11, here's the first one. Matthew chapter 11, just the prior chapters, look to the other side of the page. Jesus says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from, from whom? from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus began setting a precedent of his delight in revealing things and granting grace. He said it's his gracious will to give grace to those that are like little children, those that have that capacity to actually receive something from a higher power, from someone outside of themselves. They don't feel self-sufficient and completely independent like they have arrived, like they have no need for God. He just, he delights. He says it's his gracious will to reveal these things to little children. So as you're standing before King Jesus in the throne room, you're pleading your case, he begins to reveal to you how he's going to make things right. And firstly, he says he's going to make things right by giving grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves, then we, we're actually giving God capacity to make things right in our lives. He says this is his gracious will. And I would propose to you that there are two types of humility. Humility is actually a complex uh, issue of the heart. It's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. I feel like it's subtle and, and the, the issues of pride that, that lurk in our hearts, they are deceptive. There's two, so, there's two types of humility I want to highlight. Firstly is the, is the humility to recognize that we are completely lost without God. It's finally recognizing the, the, the dead end that is godlessness. 
A life without God is a dead end. We finally realize, oh, I've been the master of my own destiny, and I've been going around and around in circles. Ah, it doesn't work. You finally realize as you continue to trip and fall, trip and fall, trip and fall, that, ah, that's the definition of insanity. That's humility to recognize that, that you have a need for God. The second type of humility, I would say, is a little more subtle. And I would say oftentimes we miss this opportunity to receive more from God, more uh, we, we, we kind of don't have room for all that God has for us because of this t- sort of pride. It's the pride of thinking that we can earn our own salvation, that somehow we can gain God's acceptance through the things that we do. We call this religion. And oftentimes I, I sit up here and I rant against religion because I see it as a complete dead end. Dead uh, outward religion is a dead end, and it's a mockery to God. It really is. Jesus did not give his life for religion. He gave his life for actual relationship with, human, with humanity. And Jesus, in his ministry, three and a half years, he rails against the religious leaders because they so uh, adored and they were enamored with the outward showings of religion. And so if you want to break it down, you can think of both irreligion, which is godlessness, and religion are both a mockery to God. God wants something completely different than irreligion and religion. He wants our hearts. He wants a relationship. And that is found in the place of humility. When you realize, I, I am completely and desperately in need of God. I can't, I'm, I'm nothing without him. And as you begin that pursuit, you begin to realize how, how often our hearts move towards self-salvation somehow trying to earn God's favor. He displayed his delight for you by giving his son, by giving heaven's best, by his son being nailed upon a cross for you, for you personally, yes, for humanity, universally, but for you. This was brought to mind recently, just two weeks ago, um, I had a new nephew that was born. His name is Dean, which is actually my father's name, so it's pretty special. I get to meet Dean this week. Uh, my brother over in Iowa City, he had his first son, Dean. And, you know, captured in a little infant is the picture of what Jesus delights in in that passage in Matthew chapter 11. He said it's his gracious will to reveal these things to these little children. Because children, especially in their earliest forms, they display the humility of the kingdom of God. You see that little infant is completely and utterly in every way dependent upon his mother and his father, for, for his life and his sustenance and his existence. He cannot make it more than a couple days without them. But naturally, which is the healthy order of things, we grow out of that. You know, we grow to live independent, good, healthy lives. That's good. I am affirming that. You should move out from your mom's basement. But in the kingdom of God, we're not supposed to move out of our parents' basement, actually. In the kingdom of God, we're supposed to stay in that state of utter dependence upon God. We are supposed to stay in that state of childlikeness in our humility, at least, not in our maturity. We're supposed to move on to maturity, but in our humility, stay in that place of utter dependence. Jesus says that is the place of fruitfulness. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Stay in that place of complete dependence, just like Joe was talking about earlier. Rest in God. Believe that he is your sufficient Savior, that he is more than enough. That he has grace for you today to get you through the day. 
So you're standing before King Jesus. You're pleading your case. You're throwing your issue before him, your burden, the things that you carry. And he's revealing to you his decision about your case. And he says, firstly, realize that if you begin to humble your heart, you give capacity for me to actually make things right. You're giving me room to actually move and grant you grace. He gives grace to the humble. A common theme, he resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Trust me, cling to humility. Run from pride. Soften your hearts. Whatever you gotta do, get on your knees. That's a practice of mine. I just get on my knees continually before King Jesus, asking him for for him to soften my heart today. But secondly, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, you don't have to turn there necessarily, I'll just summarize it. Jesus shares a testimony. This is the second aspect of how Jesus begins to bring about justice in our lives. He tells a story, it's a parable of the unforgiving servant, that's what some have come to know it as, but Jesus tells it like this. A king wants to settle his accounts with his servants. He goes through the line, all these servants who have debts with him, and um, he finally comes to one who has an astronomical debt, 10,000 talents, which scholars estimate to be around 15 years uh, worth of wages. So that's a lot of money to owe. And you know, upwards of 750000 to a million dollars, uh, most probably, that this man in our dollars owed his king. So he falls on his knees and he says, please have mercy, have mercy, just give me, just be patient, I'll pay it back. When in actuality, he probably never would be able to, but please have, have patience with me. And the master says, okay, I'm going to have mercy on you. Actually, I'm going to wipe you free of any of your debt. I'm just going to completely forgive you of your debt. The servant gets up and whew, he escaped that. And he goes on and he goes to one of his coworkers, one of his fellow servants, who actually owed him the Bible says around three to four months' wages. So compared to the million that he owed the king, he owed about $10,000 maybe. And he is just a bully to this guy, just relentless. Just that, you, you punk, you owe me this money. You give me the money, or I'm throwing you in prison until you can pay it back. And he does. He can't pay him back the $10,000. He doesn't have an emergency fund. You have an emergency fund. So he throws him in prison. Well, word gets out. Other servants hear about how this guy handled his coworker after the king had just had mercy on him. <laughs> and the king is not happy. So the king calls a servant again. And this is what the king says to him. This is the words of Jesus. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you. And the relevance, or the, sorry, the context of that parable that Jesus tells is, is the religious leaders coming to him, asking him, how many times should we forgive our brothers? How many times, if we're wrong, how many times? And Jesus says, don't even keep track of counting. Seventy times seven, just continue to forgive. Whatever you do, forgive. That is the mantra of the kingdom of heaven, forgive. There's not a single situation in which we cannot forgive our brother or sister who's wronged us. So you're standing before King Jesus, you're pleading your case. He's telling you, this is how I'm going to make things right in your life. And he says, secondly, I'm going to make things right by, for, by you forgiving those, or I, I'm going to forgive those that forgive. That is the pathway for him making things right in your life, is when you continually posture your heart in a place of forgiveness towards those around you. He makes things right by forgiving those that forgive. Any choo- anytime we choose to embrace unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, anger, we're giving God no room to move in our lives. 
and I say this with, with the utmost humility and sincerity in my heart, I know forgiveness is a touchy subject. I know it's painful, I know it's difficult, but I would say that the power of forgiveness far outweighs the difficulties of forgiveness. And we gotta just day after day do whatever it takes to throw these things before the Lord and say, God, I forgive that person for the wrong that they've done towards me, for how they treated me. And it's so interesting how deceptive forgiveness is because, or unforgiveness really is, because we know, if we're honest, that we've all wronged somebody. We've cut somebody off, we've cussed at someone, we've been angry at somebody, we've maybe betrayed somebody, we've not kept our word, we've lied to somebody, and yet, when someone else does it to us, we think that situation far surpasses anything that we've ever done to somebody else. And for some reason, we hold that thing precious like a jewel. We protect it. We think it's, we think, when really it's just a cancer in our soul, but we, we protect it like it's something precious. We, we hold it up and we exalt it like it's more significant, but it's really not. It's a broken part of our humanity. And, and as we stand before King Jesus, we realize, ah, oh, we have offended him way more than we could offend anybody else or someone else could ever offend us. And yet he forgave us. And so if God, holy, almighty God, sovereign above all, can forgive humanity, of course, we can forgive our brother, our sister. While we were still enemies of God, he pursued us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want to share a story. I'm just going to read it because it's a lengthy story. This is a story from a, a Christian pastor, a Romanian pastor, who's now gone to be the Lord. He went to be with the Lord in 2001. Richard Wormbrandt. Richard Wormbrandt suffered for years in Romania, being tortured and imprisoned for years. He tells this story of his wife during World War II, of an encounter that she had with the murderer of, of her family, of her, both her parents, her brother, one of her brothers, and three of her sisters. And his wife's name is Sabina. This is in Romania, World War II. This is a Jewish couple. And so um, Romania got pulled into the war. And many Jews from Romania died as well in the war. So just listen to this story. Sometime later, our landlord, a good Christian, told me sadly of a man who was staying in the house while on leave from the front. I knew him before the war, he said, but he's changed completely. He has become a brute who likes to boast of how he volunteered to exterminate Jews and killed hundreds with his own hands. I was deeply distressed, and I decided to pass the night in prayer to avoid disturbing Sabina, that's his wife, who was unwell and who would have wished to join in my vigil in spite of that. I went upstairs after supper to the landlord's flat to pray with him, pray with the murderer. Lounging in an armchair was a giant of a man whom the landlord introduced as Barilla, the killer of Jews. When he rose, he was even taller than I, and there seemed to be about him an aura of horror that was like the smell of blood. The murderer proved to, to be not only a murderer, though. Nobody is only one thing. He was a pleasant talker, and eventually it came out that he had a great love of music. He mentioned that while serving in Ukraine, he had been captivated by the songs there. He said, I wish I could, have, I, I wish I could hear them again. I knew some of those old songs, I thought to myself, looking at Barilla, the fish has entered my net. If you'd like to hear some of them, I told him, come to my flat. I'm no pianist, but I can play a few Ukrainian melodies. The landlord, his wife, and his daughter, daughter accompanied us. 
My wife was in bed. She was, she was used to me playing softly at night and did not wake up. I played the folk songs, songs which are alive with feeling, and I could see that Barilla was deeply moved. I remembered how when King Saul was afflicted by an evil spirit, the boy David had played the harp before him. I stopped and turned to Barilla. I have something very important to say to you, I told him. Please speak, he said. If you look through that curtain, you can see someone is asleep in the next room. It's my wife, Sabina. Her parents, her sisters, and a 12-year-old brother have been killed with the rest of the family. You told me that you've killed hundreds of Jews near Golta, and that is where they were taken. Looking into his eyes, I added, you yourself don't know who you've shot, so we can assume that you are the murderer of her family. He jumped up, his eyes blazing, looking as if he were about to strangle me. I held up my hand and said, now, let's try an experiment. I shall wake my wife, and I shall tell her who you are and what you have done. I can tell you what will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She'll embrace you as if you were her brother. She'll bring you supper, the best things that she has in the house. Now, if Sabina, who is a sinner like us all, can forgive and love like this, imagine how Jesus, who is perfect love, can forgive and love you. Only turn to him, and everything you have done will be forgiven. Barilla was not heartless. Within, he was consumed by guilt and misery at what he had done. And he had shaken his brutal talk at us as a crab shakes its claws. One tap at his weak spot and his defenses crumbled. The music had already moved his heart and now came, instead of the attack he expected, words of forgiveness. His reaction was amazing. He jumped up and he tore at his collar with both hands so that his shirt was rent apart. Oh God, what shall I do? What shall I do? He cried. He put his head in his hands and he sobbed noisily as he rocked himself back and forth. I'm a murderer. I'm soaked in blood. What shall I do? Tears ran down his cheeks. I cried, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command the devil of hatred to go out of your soul. Barilla fell on his knees trembling and we began to pray aloud. He knew no prayers. He simply asked again and again for forgiveness and said that he hoped and knew it would be granted. We were on our knees together for some time. Then we stood up and embraced each other, and I said, I promise to make an experiment. I shall keep my word. I went into the other room and found my wife still sleeping calmly. She was very weak and exhausted at that time. I woke her gently and said, there's a man here whom you must meet. We believe he's murdered your family, but he's repented, and now he is our brother. So she came out in her dressing gown. She put out her arms to embrace him. Then both began to weep and to kiss each other again and again. I've never seen a bride and bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as this murderer and the survivor among his victims. Then as I foretold, Sabina went to the kitchen to bring him food, the best that she had. Barilla's happiness was moving. He stayed with us that night and he woke the next day and he said, it's been a long time since I slept like that. That morning, Barilla went or wanted to meet our Jewish friends, and I took him to many Hebrew Christian homes. Everywhere he told his story, and he was received as the returning prodigal son. Then, with a New Testament which I gave him, he went to join his regiment in another town. Barilla later came to say that his unit has been ordered to the front. He refused to kill anyone ever again, but instead became a soldier who risked his life daily going to the front line of battle to rescue wounded soldiers. That is such an extreme example of forgiveness, a radical example of forgiveness, far surpassing what most of you and I will ever experience. And so I would pray that it would put into perspective any unforgiveness that you and I 
hang on to. So as King Jesus is standing before you, you're in the throne room, and he's telling you the path of how he's going to make things right in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. It's through humility, rending our hearts, saying, God, I'm desperate need of you, and showing continually this radical forgiveness. And that's how I want us to respond this morning. If everyone would just stand in this place, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus. Throughout this series, we've been inviting people forward to this front area just to have a moment with God. I feel like summertime is a, a special time for us to just slow down a little bit and receive from the Lord, to receive ministry maybe in a way that we can't during the busy school year. And I just know in a crowd of this size that some aspect of this of this word, this good news, resonates in your hearts. Whether it be you're here this morning and you're, you're harboring unforgiveness towards someone, resentment, anger, this morning Jesus is providing for you a path out, a way for things to be made right. I'm not asking for you to trust somebody. See, trust is different than forgiveness. Trust is very costly, it's expensive. Forgiveness is free. We just offer forgiveness. We just offer it in our heart of hearts. I forgive them, Lord. I forgive them. Does not mean you need to be subject and a victim again and again. I'm not for once espousing that. But forgiveness should be freely offered. I forgive. And secondly, I'm sure there's others in this place that when I talk about the humility that it requires to receive grace from God, you'd say, yeah, that's me. I've often said I have no need for God. Or you find yourself in that place where you're constantly trying to earn God's salvation, which is really a mockery to God, being he gave his very best for you. He already fully displayed it on the cross, like before everyone, publicly, for you, fully, radically paying for your sin and your issues. So I just want us to respond right now if you just bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're in this place and you'd say you're part of that first group, you'd say, Drew, yeah, I have some undealt with unforgiveness in my heart that I want to confess to the Lord. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, not to embarrass you, but I just want to know who I'm praying for. If you're in this place and that's you, Drew, you'd say, yeah, I got some unforgiveness. Yes. Awesome. 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 Yes. King Jesus sees you. He does, and he's saying, yes, there's grace. Every time you extend forgiveness to someone who's wronged you, he's pouring out grace to you. That's how justice is administered in the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, right now, over every person that raised their hand in this place, I'm asking for just a special grace right now upon them, for healing in their hearts, wounded hearts to be made right by King Jesus. As they say, I forgive, God, I pray, Comforter, Counselor, surround them with your presence right now to make things right, that they would actually believe the words that are coming out, out of their mouth, mouth, Lord, that they would actually feel love and compassion for those that have wronged them. They would not harbor any resentment, any fear. God, I, I just rebuke all anger, all hatred, resentment, sleepless nights, Lord. I just come against it right now in the name of Jesus that that special grace would just be poured out upon every person that raised their hand right now. And even others that weren't willing to raise their hand as they confess forgiveness, they declare that over their lives. I pray that you'd meet them, Jesus. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.